So the food world got rocked this week, eh? <laughs> rocked to its very I mean, core. I mean, the food me the food media got a real uh, <laughs> dose of something juicy to write about, I guess. Yeah. And podcasters, something juicy to talk about. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, Rene Redzepi, who's the chef of Noma, announced last week that they're going to be closing the restaurant in a year. And... Um, turning it into a food lab, which isn't unprecedented. No, uh, it's a which is, it's yeah, a which is play right else. out of uh, Fran Adria's book, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but man, like, I mean, I for for any listeners who don't know, I had a stage at Noma for a short period of time, about six weeks, like more than a decade ago. Um, but it was pretty formative in terms of my experiences as a chef and my learning about, um, you know, sort of a broader world of cuisine and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I also worked in Copenhagen for about 10 months after that, and which I wouldn't have, ha- have had the opportunity to do if I hadn't staged at Noma. Mm-hmm. And so when I heard this news and read what Rene had to say about it and read a few opinion pieces about it. Um, I, you know, I gotta say I wasn't shocked, but like a big part of me, and I know that this is recency bias, but like a big part of me was like, Oh my God, Rene watched the menu and he just couldn't <laughs> bear to go into work anymore. after Yeah. That. <laughs> yeah. It crossed my mind. too. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Food Court. I'm Alan Sudderby, and I'm here with my good buddy, Shell McDonald. Hi, Shell. Hey, Alan. We're two chefs in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. We love food, and we love to talk about it. Um, I also have lingering the menu um, feelings, because <laughs> right. shortly, uh, sorry, the week after um we watched it we had a fresh intake of students in the restaurant and so we're training them on the line and part of the training is like this is how we communicate on the line Mm -hmm. the expediting chef is going to say kitchen and the kitchen is going to respond yes chef (laughs) and it's like this kind of like it sounds hokey but yeah it's like this like we want them to respond in unison and and it just like totally uh, like brought me back to the movie and i was like oh this is kind of bizarre actually Um, (laughs) that is bizarre it's like you know being that that type of obedience is being you know taught in school i yeah like it's i don't know it's weird i (laughs) i'm of two minds about it for sure because like on the one hand I understand the importance of communication in the kitchen, for sure, especially on a hotline. Mm -hmm. Like everything needs to happen in a really compressed timeline and everyone needs to know what's going on. Mm -hmm. And it's important for the people that are trying to keep that organized that they know who is aware of what's going on and who isn't. And that, you know, the people that need to deliver things are ready to deliver them and stuff like that. Mm Mm-hmm. But the unison thing, that feels cultish to me. <laughs> but it didn't feel, it does to me a little bit now, 
because the movie so yeah. fresh my mind, but it did not feel cultish to me before. Like when I watched the seven days out episode on 11 Madison park and the team is responding. Right. Yes. Or so they respond. We, I think usually or something like that. Okay. Um, it was so powerful to me. I was like, cause I'm, you know, trying to be a cult leader, I guess. But like, I was like, <laughs> 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 I was, but oh, you know no. what I mean. Like yeah, I would look at it and be exactly like, "Oh my goodness, become. what a strong team! Everyone has bought in. Like it's right. such a great energy." Um, no, and I do think that there is a difference between a team and a cult. <laughs> and I do, I do think, I, I, I do think that, um, you know, there are behaviors or um, requirements even of being a part of a team that could appear cultish. Um, yes. And I think, yeah, definitely <laughs> the movie, the menu, um, makes great use of that, yes. um, to, to, uh, the benefit of its satire, but mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that must've felt pretty weird. Yes, it did. And so what's, what's really different about the announcement of the closure of Noma from the, uh, closure of Albuli, um, I guess Mm -hmm. a little more than 10 years ago is that a huge part of the conversation of the closure of Noma is around, um, work culture and unpaid, um, labor. That was not, not part of Fran Adria's departure from the restaurant scene. It was his, his departure was much more glowing reverence and farewell. And, but here, um, especially, like this has always been floating around, but especially there was uh, pieces in the New York Times and the Financial Times um, and that interviewed or had comments from Red Zeppi, um, and they take this issue. Uh, it's those articles that's kind of fomenting the the really large um, conversation um, around the closure of the restaurant because they talk specifically right. about the economics, and I didn't realize this actually, but apparently for the last year or so, Noma has been paying its stagiaires. Did, stagiaires. You, did you know that? I didn't know that until I read the article. Yeah, me too. Um, and so it's explicitly stated that this has added $50,000 uh, to their operating costs monthly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, Red Zeppi's words were, um, it's unsustainable financially and emotionally as an employer and as a human being. It just doesn't work. So even though the initial, like the stuff that Red Zeppi was posting on Instagram was like, cool, we're becoming a food lab. Um, right. Really, <laughs> in these articles, you find out like it's a, it's a financial thing and it's a sustainability thing. So there's a, there's a lot to unpack about it. Yeah, totally. And I definitely have some thoughts about that. I think like, you know, now that we're sort of talking about it and now that you mention it, this is just my own impression but I would be shocked if, like, the closing of El Bulli, although the press around it wasn't necessarily drawing attention to the fact that it was, like, the sustainability and the economics that made it difficult to keep the restaurant going. Mm-hmm. And I do think that El Bulli, they they had a bit of a different model. How so? You know, they were only open for a portion of the year they only, mm, they were right. only open for about half of the year mm-hmm. that's right yeah and so in some ways you might look at that and and see it as being a more difficult model because then you the the i guess ideally the profits of the restaurant have to sustain the people who continue to work uh doing 
menu development and research throughout the closed season. Right. Um, like the, the money to make that happen has to come from somewhere. Um, and I know that a large portion of that money probably came from like, uh, like revenue that wasn't coming directly from the restaurant. So things right. like book sales and um, sales of like El Bulli has a line. Oh, I don't know if they have a line of it anymore. They may not anymore. But at the time they had a line of like um, modern ingredients, ingredients and things. Yeah, modern ingredients um, that you could buy online and lots of. Uh, sort of modern fine dining restaurants used those ingredients and ordered them like mm-hmm. around the world uh, from El Bulli. So mm-hmm. I think, you know, a lot of the sustainability of their business came from external sources, not just from people paying for dinner in the restaurant. And I know that that's also true of Noma to right. some extent. And I don't, but I've always, I don't have any, <laughs> this is just hearsay at this point, but um, mm-hmm. obviously there's different revenue streams from books and stuff, but I was always under the impression that it was essentially bankrolled by um, hoteliers and stuff in the in Copenhagen and Denmark um, as a way to promote tourism in the in uh, in the region. Right. I'm sure that there is some of that, and honestly, I'm not aware of what those numbers are like. Mm-hmm. Like, I have no idea, and I don't know. Like, I've never actually seen any like real reporting about that. Like, mm-hmm. it it's. It's definitely something that I've heard people talk about, mm-hmm. but it definitely wasn't ever evident in anything that I read about the restaurant or anyone okay. like or from any information that I got from anyone while I was working at the restaurant or thereafter. Like, mm-hmm. um, I'm sure that it must be the case that they had investors who were just investing in the restaurant to keep it going because it was worthwhile in that way. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, I'm sure that must be true. But yeah, as to like how much money that is and what portion of the of like the income of the restaurant that made, I, I just have no idea. And so it's I can't really comment on it. But but I, I think that a lot of uh, these types of, you know, super high end fine dining restaurants do have to generate supplemental income somehow, mm-hmm. either through investors or, um, you know, different revenue streams like that aren't just the restaurant because if you look at the economics of what kind of money a restaurant brings in even one that charges four hundred dollars for lunch or whatever 400 euros drinks, right uh isn't it 400 euros do you didn't know about? i i don't actually know okay but how much is 400 euros alan is it less than 400 american dollars or is it more than 400 american Wait. dollars the answer to that question is you can't answer it because sometimes it's less and sometimes it's more well no the so. euro has <laughs> i don't think the canadian dollar has ever been valued higher than the euro no that i think that's probably true anyways although i think it's been pretty close in in the last <laughs> this is not couple our area years, of but... expertise let's return to <laughs> let's return to talking about uh Whatever, <laughs> let's learn something <laughs> um anyway uh yeah in the neighborhood of I would say like and in, and then including like wine and some people who get wine and some people do, who don't or whatever and you know whatever the profit is on wine versus whatever the profit is on the food like you know you can't like without looking at the actual numbers you can't really dig down that deep into it but like let's say that they make $500 like 
in the neighborhood of 500 Canadian dollars or 500 mm-hmm. American dollars um, off of each guest. And let's say that they can serve 70 or 80 guests a day. Um, you know, you're looking at somewhere in the neighborhood of like just over a million dollars in revenue a month, like $1.3 million in revenue in a month. Um, and so, and then if you break that down into what the, like in a normal restaurant situation, um, you know, like what portion of that money would, um, then be used to pay the staff. Um, you're talking about roughly, well, less than a third of it. So you're looking at somewhere around like $400,000 or something like that in a month to pay all of the staff. And so that seems like a lot of money on the surface of it. But when you start talking about having to increase that by like 20% or something in order to be able to just pay your your unpaid workers something so that they right. can have some money while they're working there. Like that's a, that's a huge additional chunk, like Mm -hmm. percentage wise, that's a huge additional chunk of the amount of money that you have to pay for labor to keep your restaurant afloat. Right. But that should have been completely predictable to them. They know they've had stage years for a decade or whatever. And like, they know they've run the business so long. Like that seems like it would have been obvious. Oh, I'm not saying that. I think it was shocking to them. I'm just saying that like, it seems perfectly realistic or it seems perfectly reasonable for them to say that that's not sustainable, Mm -hmm. you know, like economically just on the economic side. Right. Like, and I'm honestly surprised that it's not more than that to pay all of the stagiaires Mm -hmm. something. I don't know what they're paying them, but $50,000 a month seems like a very low amount of money for the number of stagiaires that they have there. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was on the order of 30. One of the articles said that at any given time, there'd be ab- about 30 staff and about 30 stagiaires. Sorry, paid staff. Yeah, when I was there, there was about 40 stagiaires. Yeah. So, so can I ask you, you worked there, you weren't paid. Do you think stagiaires should be paid? Um, yeah, I do. Okay. <laughs> of course. Um, I and, mean... It, and sorry, do you see the the kind of irony? So you, you we started by saying that it was such a memorable... Um, and formative experience for you Mm -hmm. but stagiaires should be paid isn't there kind of like a contradiction there where the only reason noma was able to operate at that level was because of the extra hands in the kitchen and if they Mm -hmm. paid those stagiaires they wouldn't be able to operate that level and no one would want to go stage there is that a fair thing to say (laughs) yeah yeah absolutely so it's a a conundrum (laughs) yeah it's like yeah like what's the i don't know you know, the pyramids being built by slaves kind of thing. <laughs> Do you know what I mean, it's like, yeah, yeah, what a terrible thing, but also it's cool to have pyramids. Is that a, this is, that's like uh, a, a really crass way of, uh, I mean, what I'm th- saying. yeah, it's weird territory to get into because staging is voluntary and I yes. don't feel yeah. like slave labor is voluntary. Yes. <laughs> so there's a big difference there. Like there's a huge difference there. Yeah. Um, that's a big, <laughs> that's such a big piece of this is that the stagiaires, it's entirely voluntary. They know yeah. beforehand it's not paid. And I'll even go so far, if, if you'll allow me a, a little, it's not a tangent. I think it's it's very relevant. But sure. there is a lot of um, this. I'm going to promote this idea that I don't want to generalize. Well, no, I have to generalize. But in a global sense, you know, most of the people who staged at Noma 
were part of a very privileged class. Right. In that they were, they had, I'm not saying it was easy for them, but they had the resources often to fly across the world and work somewhere where they know they're not going to get paid. Yeah. And so to have it turned around um, and for them to complain about like some of these allegations that they bring up in, in terms of the, you know, the value of staging um, mm-hmm. and the workplace culture at Noma, the, the ones that are brought up in the Financial Times article are, <laughs> I'd actually, can I read some of them to you? And you'd get, can sure, I get, yeah, get your I haven't take read on that them? article, so I'm curious to for, hear what they for had folks, to say. For um, folks listening who want to read these, I, the New York Times article and the Financial Times article are both behind paywalls, but Bon Appetit does a really good synopsis of them. Um, that right. is free. So you should check that out. I'll put that, I'll put a link to the Bon Appetit article in the show notes for oh, sure. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Okay. So some of the allegations that um, the New York Times reported having interviewed stagiaires. Here's one, Shale. Many interns found themselves performing menial tasks. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So far, it sounds like a cook job. Yeah. Welcome to the rest of your life if you plan to be a cook. Um, yeah. The next one is the same time story quotes an intern who recalls being forbidden from laughing in the kitchen. Yeah, I read that one, actually. I, th- I think that was quoted in the New York Times article. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I I mean, whatever. Obviously, there, I wasn't there. I, I shouldn't try to comment on anyone's like experience that they had while they were there staging. But I can definitely see that. That's the thing is that there's no context. Right. Yeah, there's no context. And so it's it's difficult to comment on it. I, yeah. And I haven't spoken to this person. Mm-hmm. But I can definitely see someone asking someone not to laugh yeah. if, you know, under the right circumstances and that person being upset about it mm-hmm. and not feeling like they have the have the ability to say anything to anyone about it. Right. And there were definitely, when I was there, there were definitely things that people said to me that I was like completely um, turned off by. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there were things that people, um, the way in which they spoke to me, um, the way in which they asked me to do tasks or the way in which they judged or graded the tasks that I was working on, mm-hmm. um, that was like, you know, really negative and toxic and um, like alpha doggy or something like that right yeah um and that was definitely uh like i don't know it's tricky because i wouldn't say that that was the the whole culture there i would say that overall the the working culture there was like very team oriented Mm -hmm. and for the most part very positive and there were there was a lot of like levity and you know chatting and making jokes and laughing and and mm-hmm. you know there it's not like there was somebody going around telling <laughs> people police. that they weren't allowed to laugh yeah um right. or something like that so you know but i can see you know someone um you know like someone who has a negative attitude who works there um getting annoyed that you know like the work's not getting done but there's a lot of joking going on or something like that yeah. and saying something like you're not allowed to laugh here or something like that you <laughs> right. know I, I can see that happening and i don't i don't condone it and i don't think it's good but it also 
isn't shocking to me to hear that. Right. But it is kind of shocking to me to hear someone bring it up as an example of what the culture was like maybe several years after they experienced it. Like, yeah. it's kind of, it, it's, it's, it's interesting to think that that's somebody's takeaway, <laughs> you know? Yes, that's how I feel. And, and that it was reported yeah. as a, as a, like the second bullet of the allegations was that someone was told not to laugh. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Like, and no context given and it's an open kitchen isn't it for service so like there's... uh well yeah but a lot of the work happens outside the open right. kitchen yeah fair enough yeah so yeah so um, I, you know i don't know if that was if that's something that happened during service in the open kitchen or mm-hmm. if it happened during prep time um in another space or or what happened but uh one of the uh, points in the Financial Times piece is uh, until just a few months ago, approximately 30 interns were working unpaid 16-hour days. So again, we uh, the stagiaires know that it's unpaid work. What was really surprising to me in our conversation that we had about, like the whole episode that we had about your time at Noma, was that mm. you were not told in advance that you'd be working 16-hour days. And you mentioned on the first day you didn't know when it was going to end. And that's, sh- that yeah. actually shocked me that they, it's, it's one thing again, like to just to not be transparent about it and upfront about it. It's weird that yeah. they wouldn't say like, you know, send you a kind of briefing email and say like, here's what you can expect. Cause yeah. then I don't know, like I, I imagine some people, if you're faced with that would, would reconsider whether or not they want to do it. Right. Yeah, I agree. And I don't know if after, if at some point after I worked there, because I know, like, one of the things that, or like, one of the feelings that I have about this topic of conversation and um, about the sustainability of stagiaires and, and about Noma closing and sort of like the feelings that I get from that um, are that, like, I know even just from the time that I was a stagiaire there until the time when I left Copenhagen. So, which was like almost a year later, mm-hmm. I know that they had um, made some pretty big changes to the way that they were handling um, communicating with their stagiaires and what the, what exactly the arrangement was for the work that the stagiaires were doing and, mm-hmm. and things like that. And, and, and so I, you kind of get the impression from reading a lot of the articles or um or like uh from from the outside that like um you know since noma's been open they've been taking advantage of this like you know free workforce and that's the only reason why they're able to run the restaurant and that um and that like you know they have full knowledge of the idea that they're doing something that's detrimental for these these people who are volunteering there and that they just don't care because they're making money off it or something like that right. you yeah. know mm-hmm. and the restaurant's famous and the chefs get to be famous and and everybody's like yay and you know we'll mm-hmm. just not talk about this dirty little secret about the stagiaires right and i don't really feel like that's the case like i know that even when i was there you know, they were talking about trying to do things to improve the situation for stagiaires, trying to I, like one of the big things was, I think when I came, there was some like very small um, uh, like 
accommodation for some stagiaires. Like if, if you were lucky, um, like there were 40 stagiaires and I think there were like maybe three like rooms that they could board stagiaires in. Oh. But I know that in the time that I was in Copenhagen, they were trying to solve that, like trying to f- find a way for the stagiaires to have an accommodation. Right. Um, so that they didn't have to find their own accommodation in Copenhagen. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that they have been talking about trying to pay the stagiaires some kind of money for a really long time. But the economics of it are, uh, I mean, kind of like we said, very difficult. And so, you know, I'm sure it wasn't just like, you know, one day last year or two years ago, they were like, oh, we haven't been paying our stagiaires. Oh, maybe we should, maybe we should dig up fifty grand a month to to like start giving them some kind of wage. Like I, I don't, you know, like I think that that's something that they've been thinking about trying to do for a really long time, and the economics of it were very difficult. And that you know they finally got to a point where they figured that they could, you know, potentially make it work with this, you know with a specific amount of money and, you know, a specific amount of stagiaires and where they're going to be getting that money from, I have no idea. Mm -hmm. Um, But like, I'm sure that they worked really hard to um, try and make that happen. And I'm sure that that's something that they were thinking about for years before they were actually even able to make it happen. And so, you know, I, I, I just, you know, like you get the impression that like it was a sudden realization that they're taking advantage of these people or something. And right. and then you interview these people who had a rough time there and you're like and, and, you know, you get the impression that, yeah, the restaurant was like happily taking advantage of these people. But I don't I think that's a pretty drastic oversimplification mm-hmm. of the of the actual um, reality mm-hmm. of the situation. Yeah. And, and like, you know, like you said, the 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 biggest part the 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 most drastic difference there is that like in reality all of these people chose to go there and and they went for a reason you know yeah to and they me, maybe didn't like me they maybe didn't anticipate what it was going to be like and i don't know oh yeah i guess like i kind of got off on a tangent there but i like i i think that i mean when i was coming to stage there there was quite a bit of communication it's just that like I don't think anyone thought that it was important to mention that it was going to be hard work and a long day because mm-hmm. <laughs> that's just what they're living or something. It's kind of like the most fundamental aspect of what it's like to be working at Noma. And so it's sort of, I think, wasn't a, I don't think it was a um, deliberate oversight that they didn't tell me that I would be working 16 hour days. I think it was an accidental oversight. And I mm, think that it's possible that they fixed that at some point. You know, yeah, like I hope so that they did send out to people a, a, an idea of what they should expect when coming there, mm-hmm. and I don't think anyone probably expects to be told not to laugh. <laughs> but at the same time, um, some people laugh too much, <laughs> like you. No, I was know. gonna say <laughs> you can never laugh too much. Um, I don't know. Maybe maybe you could in the kitchen, but. Um, but that's probably not the reason why someone was told not to laugh. Right. Um, it's because they laugh too much. But uh, but yeah, like I I do think that there is a trade-off that you're making there. And you it may defy your expectations once mm-hmm. you get there. Like the trade-off that you're making may seem better or worse in your favor when you get there and you actually are exposed to the work and, 
yep. what you need to do and and how and maybe if if you're not getting paid anything how much it maybe costs for you to find an accommodation for yourself and you yep. know like it's it's a pretty it's a pretty big move and it's a pretty complicated process and it's pretty hard to anticipate all of the difficulties that you might have yes and i definitely had some difficulties while i was there mm. um but you know i you said i you also knew left. that i you said you, you said you almost quit right or it crossed your mind uh, that you might not finish it oh definitely crossed my mind that i might not finish it especially yeah. in the first week yeah um you know yeah and especially in the first week i thought oh i, I might not be able to make this work mm-hmm. um but yeah i did after the first week it was still extremely hard. And by the end of the six weeks, I think my health wasn't very good because I was just like basically not sleeping enough. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I was on my feet for, yeah, roughly 16 hours a day. And my body was not used to that. And so it was getting really rough by the end of six weeks or mm-hmm. whatever. But I also knew that I, that I was getting something out of it. Mm-hmm. And I didn't feel taken advantage of, I guess. is like uh, the ultimate point is that I didn't feel taken advantage of. Right. Um, any more than like anyone who works in the restaurant industry may <laughs> right. feel taken advantage of from you know from time to time in terms of the amount of money that you're able to earn for the amount of work that you have to do to earn it right or yeah you know can i can i read one more yeah allegation please. um the finan- this is quoting the Bon Appetit article. The Financial Times also mentions one front-of-house intern who allegedly recalls seeing kitchen interns be made to pluck feathers off of ducks outside <laughs> in the freezing rain. There were definitely... I mean, <laughs> when I was there, there was a whole section of the kitchen that was outside. Yes. It was like outside the back of the restaurant, there were like grills set up and mm-hmm. stuff, like grills that we could not have indoors, like... Um, right. charcoal burning grills and things like that mm-hmm. stuff that the kitchen wasn't built for and that we couldn't have inside and so there was like a whole section of the kitchen and some kitchen storage and things that were out back of the restaurant right and paid cooks would work out there whether it was raining or snowing or right and if it was snowing you'd put on a jacket and a hat and you'd be out there and sometimes you would have to go out there and help them with something and you didn't have time to grab a jacket or a hat right and so you'd be out in the i mean it was it was winter when i was there and Mm -hmm. it didn't snow tons but it yeah it was like cold and rainy pretty often Mm -hmm. and you know people would just be out there grilling plucking ducks stuff (laughs) yeah it's just so most of the duck plucking happened inside (laughs) from what i remember (laughs) But yeah, it's not it's it's not uh, totally out of the question that um, that that could have happened outside yeah, for some reason. But it just reason, seems like such an odd point. observation. It like whatever. It's the same thing as the um, not laughing thing. It's like we don't have enough context. We weren't there. We don't know what the lived yeah. experience was of the people involved. But it just seems like so. As it was a front of house intern who's looking out yeah. the back door, seeing cooks pluck ducks. <laughs> and probably I'm imagining that this front of house intern has never seen someone have to pluck the feathers off of a bird. <laughs> and so <laughs> yeah, they just yeah, think exactly. that it's, they think that it's awful. Um, right. But really it's like, you know, it's, it's Noma. Like, you're there, you're there to serve people game and forage things like, yes, you're going to yeah. pluck the feathers off of ducks. <laughs> like, yeah, it seems so silly to me, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, that does seem kind of silly to me too. And like, you know, I can. I think I talked about this in the episode where you grilled me about my experience at Noma. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but like one of the jobs and i have plenty of context for this so so i feel totally comfortable talking about it but one of the jobs that i did that i thought was like pretty i mean like probably the job that i had to do that i was just like the most kind of like shocked about and i mm. had to do it on two separate days i think but basically my entire day was coming in the morning grab like three or four buckets of um of uh marrow bones that had been segmented mm -hmm. um cut into uh about two inch long segments mm -hmm. and then take them to this building that was far away from the restaurant not not even like um not even like just back behind the restaurant, but there was like another building where they had some storage and stuff that was like, I don't know, maybe 200 yards up the street from the restaurant mm -hmm. and sit outside in the like cold and rain uh, with, with my jacket on and take uh, like an angle grinder with a buffing head on it mm -hmm. <laughs> and polish these marrow bones oh, for, really? yeah. Oh, did I not talk about this? No, you my... definitely did. I would definitely remember that. Oh, my that. God. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, yeah. Um, I thought you were going to talk about the herb picking. Right, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, which was also which is also um, mentally kind of tough. But, mm -hmm. like, yeah, this was definitely the worst job that I had to do. Um, and uh, so, so they had a dessert that was, like, uh, smoked bone marrow caramel, mm -hmm. and it was served in a little bone. Mm-hmm. And so it was like a petty four that you get after your meal. Mm -hmm. And when you're kind of sitting in the lounge, they bring you some petty fours. And one of them was this um, this piece of actual bone that had this bone marrow caramel in it. And you dig the caramel out and eat it. And it was mm -hmm. delicious. Cool. Um, but the bones were like these perfect little serving dishes. And they were totally polished. But they were like real beef bones. Mm -hmm. And so and, – and like – it's served near the end of the meal. Everyone's had a lot to drink already. Everyone's paid whatever it is, $450 or $600 for a meal. Mm -hmm. They don't really have any, like, souvenirs or anything to, like, take home with them aside from pictures of their food mm -hmm. to remind them of the meal. And so, like, probably, you know, out of 80 bones that we use to serve bone marrow caramel to diners, like... 20 or 30 of them a day would disappear right <laughs> because people would take them home as little souvenirs oh but they would be reused like they'd be sanitized and reused oh yeah yeah okay. we would like wash them and reuse them yeah totally hmm that's funny um, i was thinking this week at uh, at work we have scallop shells like for making oh, yeah. coquille saint-jacques and stuff um yeah and i'm always like i always look at them and i'm like this is a porous material like there's no <laughs> way that this is like technically above, sanitary yeah i don't know so yeah <laughs> i think um, if, like unless it's like the the shell of the actual animal that you're eating like that to mm -hmm. me can be whatever it's like a bit over the top but like it in the right context that can be really beautiful and appropriate but just to like right. have these scallop shells that are probably like have been there for 30 years and like hundreds <laughs> of people have eaten off, i don't know it seems weird i don't know it doesn't seem that weird to me like, i mean a lot like i i think when i was there there was like some dishes that were served on flat rocks too right same situation yeah. they're porous and mm -hmm. you know it's weird but yeah you put them through the put them through a sanitizer i think it's fine but don't they get ketchup stains on them <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> 
Good one, Alan. Thanks. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so anyways, I, I, I like for I think it was I think it was two days. I, I don't think it was more than that, um, mm. but it's definitely more than one day. So I would pick up these buckets of bones <laughs> and <laughs> bone segments and carry them over to the porch of this like little off building that they had and just sit there all day for, yeah, literally like, I mean, aside from the time that it took me to go to the actual restaurant, pick up the bones, get the equipment, take it to the house, plug it in, get set up and start grinding bones. Um, I was working probably yeah 13 hours a day just sitting there with like a bone in my hand and like a dremel and an angle grinder and you'd have to like you know i like you've seen marrow bones but there's like lots of like little sharp mm-hmm. edges and stuff on the inside mm-hmm. so you'd have to grind those all off and anything that's sharp and edges on the outside or whatever and around the edges of where the bones are cut with the bandsaw or whatever there would be like little bone fragments and i would have to like smooth those all off and then use like a buffing brush to like make them nice and smooth and shiny right and uh yeah I, <laughs> I i just did that for like 13 hours a day just sitting on this little stool just like with an angle grinder grinding down bones and there's just like i would come back at the end of the day and my like my hair and my face and my hands <laughs> and my jacket and my pants were just covered in bone dust yeah it smelled like um yeah, it smelled like the smell that you smell when when uh, you're in the dentist office and they have to like grind something away on one of your teeth. Right, it's like that yeah. that same smell. Nice man. It was it was pretty awful. I didn't love doing it, mm-hmm. but it was very eye opening. Like, yes, you know, like that. Like, I was shocked to find out that in order to make one course work for this restaurant someone has to basically sit there like i i think <laughs> I, there wasn't somebody doing that job every day right it was like every couple of weeks we would have like we would run out of enough bones that we would have to start that we would have to make some more right or something like that um but yeah like every couple of weeks for like 14 or 18 hours somebody would have to sit and buff bones just to make <laughs> <laughs> just to make a little vessel for this uh, smoked bone marrow caramel. It was mm-hmm. just like shocking to me that that was a thing and that that was the length that someone would go to 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 like make sure that, um, you know, their guests were getting the experience that they wanted them to have or whatever. Right. And so didn't love doing it, but it was certainly eye opening, like in terms of the level of, you know, the level of insanity that you have to go to to have to operate a restaurant like that. So I've, I've floated this idea to you before and you didn't agree with me, but I had proposed that, um, normal everyday working cooks being obsessed with high end or fine dining and mm-hmm. that kind of attention to detail, like that you've mentioned, like polishing bones, yep. that that can be harmful to the efficiency and productivity of a real world kitchen. If you try and like fancy yourself a chef and think that you should start doing things that don't really don't really contribute to customer experience or profits in a significant way. I think the example I've given you in the past is like Thomas Keller is saying you should never tear open a plastic bag of bread because you have to be careful and intentional and take the bread tie off and stuff like that. Um, right. Oh, and actually there's another, so here's an example. Actually, I think it's from Noma. Like at okay. one point in the Elm kitchens, I can't, 
I think it was your call. I can't remember. Mm-hmm. Maybe it came later. But the idea of like we're we're labeling everything with tape. Like every yeah. when food gets prepared, it gets put in a storage container and we label it with the title and date with a piece of tape. And yeah. then but like instead of tearing the tape off the roll, we yeah. started cutting it so it had square edges. Was that I yeah. I know that that's, that's definitely f- my call. Okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and the yeah. idea is that it looks tidy and you're putting more. We thought still do care. we do that at kind ice cream. Oh we yeah. And cut we cut all of our tape labels at kind ice cream. We still, did it. So it's yeah. we did it even after you left Elm. We did it. We did it at June's. We do it like I yes, I still do it to this yeah. day. But oh, fair. Okay. And so I'm not yeah, but the and the reason is supposed to be that it's tidy, it's professional, it's organized, it shows that you care, right? That's the that's the logic. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't yep. really doesn't really help the bottom line. Actually, kind of hurts the oh, bottom no, line because you, you spend more time cutting tape <laughs> than if you just tear it off. I mean, I I don't know. Like, yeah, uh, right. This is ex- yeah, you're right. This is like a, a super tricky question because part of me believes that it does help the bottom line. Mm-hmm. Because everyone, it's um, just a culture of organization and cleanliness, basically, right? Is that what you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And and it's like, it, it also, like, it's just one rung on a ladder of, like, uh, helping, like, new cooks or people that you're training, helping them um, gain a set of organizational skills mm-hmm. that will help keep the kitchen operating efficiently. Right. Right. Um, and yeah, it may seem like overkill. Um, but, but the the other thing about it is that like, it's hard to imagine that taking a twist tie off a bag and opening the bag from, from it's like regular opening could be faster than tearing a bag open. But I think if every time you open the bag, you like take the twist tie off or you take the bread tag off or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then if you need to close the bag, you put it back on or you discard it in, you know, in a way where it's like, you know, then dealt with or whatever. Mm -hmm. If you do that every time, it becomes really fast. You don't think about it anymore. You just do it. And it's probably not that much slower than tearing the bag open yeah yeah but the problem with tearing the bag open is that you can't close it yeah sorry and actually i simplify so the actual so it makes sense in the thomas keller story it's a it's a bag with bread in it so it will be opened and closed over the course of the day but the example that i had given in our conversation before was that basically that a cook had decided that means we never rip plastic bags but he was working with individual poly bags of portioned meat for sandwiches that had oh, been right. that had a like a single use um, adhesive seal on them, right? And he was trying. He was he would insist on un like removing the adhesive seal and opening the bag, even though it was a single use portion. That was the bag right. was going to be immediately discarded after the meat was put on the sandwich. Um, so I think it was like a basically a misunderstanding of the <laughs> what what Keller of the was philosophy of about. why you open and close a bag or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I yeah. So, and the reason why it's tricky is because I do agree there is definitely um, a level of obsession that is no longer helping make the product better or keep the quality standard of the product. Right. But you know, it's strictly um, 
you know, like, I, I don't know. I don't want to say it. like, I don't know. Maybe it's like, yeah, egotistical obsession or something, mm-hmm. you know, just because you have an idea of how you should work doesn't mean that you shouldn't um, reexamine how you're working to see if to make sure that, you know, it's helping. Yeah, the um, like how quickly you can do things and with what quality and, you know, and those things obviously all all affect the bottom line, like you said, mm-hmm. like, you know, if you have to spend it, you know, like if it can take you, uh, if it can take you two hours to trim and cut the meat that you need for service, um, if you do it using one method, but it could take you six hours using a different method. But basically at the end of the day, both of those methods, you wind up with the same quality of steaks, then right. you would be crazy to choose the six hour method. Yes. Right. And so, yeah. So can I ask this <laughs> super, the super annoying um, question that's being asked online. The background is that so uh, classical haute cuisine was built on the backs of uh, young apprentices, and they were mm-hmm. able to operate at a high level because of the um, the the young boys who are apprenticing in the hotel kitchens. Okay, and then um, labor. Have laws you read The Apprentice by Donald Trump? <laughs> I'm just kidding. I, no, I don't know what The Apprentice is. The book. It's a book by Jacques Pepin. Oh, cool. Yeah, and it's about his, uh, yeah, his life, um, learning how to cook and growing up uh, in restaurants and starting as a commie, and it's well, it's crazy and shocking, but also really interesting because it's about Jacques Pepin. He's also a great storyteller, and mm-hmm. yeah, it's like cool. definitely one of the seminal books that I read about the idea of like starting in a restaurant or being a stagiaire oh, really? or things okay. like that. Like, yeah. Cool. That's good to know. Yeah. Anyway, um, moving on. Okay. So I want to build up to this really annoying question or statement mm-hmm. that you're seeing online a lot now, but give, give me a minute. I'll, I'll build up to it. Um, yep. In terms of like a labor relations and cost perspective, we have uh, say classical haute cuisine that was kind of built on the backs of um apprentices you have young boys working to learn a trade that are getting either not paid or paid very little Mm -hmm. then of course like culture changes uh labor codes change and certainly like around the year in the 90s and the year 2000 there's kind of this um turmoil in france where like they don't have all of the apprentices and stagiaires or as many anyways. And so there's like chefs that are leaving high end, like fine dining restaurants to open bistros and brasseries that are, they were the economics make a bit more sense. There's this real crisis um, at that time uh, mm-hmm. when, when they started enforcing labor standards. Um, but then in the new millennium, in the age of El Bulli and Noma and um, what's the other big Spanish one? Oh, uh, the cellar Con Roca. I can't remember what the full name is. Another Spanish oh, restaurant. Yeah. Um, El Sayer. El Can Roca. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, you have the reintroduction of unpaid labor, but this time it's willing. It's like willing stagiaires in a global era that are flying from yeah. all over the place coming there to learn. And so it's like allows these restaurants to like it, it revolutionizes fine dining like i think that's a fair statement that the el, el bully like and like restaurants have like changed the game for fine dining um mm-hmm. but now 
the culture is changing once again and you have <laughs> movies like the menu and you have lots of people talking about uh fair wages and pay and and um consent and stuff like that so here's the question noma's closing because it needs it can't operate without free labor so is this the death of fine dining show <laughs> <laughs> Because people are rushing to say that or to refute it or. <laughs> yeah. Normally I would just blow it off and say that that's ridiculous. <laughs> yes. But. But I don't think it's a ridiculous statement, honestly. Mm. I Is it the death of fine dining? No. Obviously. <laughs> There's an answer to that question. <laughs> yeah. Okay, moving on. <laughs> um, but there's definitely like. Well, there's a couple things. So, like, if you're in that world, if you're in this, like, world of elite, like, super high-end fine dining that, yeah, utilizes, you know, a free workforce that's almost the size of its regular workforce to help, you know, make the economics viable of serving food that has this much attention put into it. Mm -hmm. um, if you're in that world and you're in that space – you look at a restaurant like Noma and there and you're and maybe you've eaten there or maybe you staged there. Um, and so you look at that and, and it's an example in your head of how this model works, right? Mm -hmm. And then you have that as an example to sort of say, okay, well, yeah, you know, potentially if I, you know, got the right mix of, you know, of like food quality and, you know, creativity and, uh, you know, like loyal customer base. And, you know, theoretically I could have, uh, make my restaurant work in a similar way to how Noma works. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, and because Noma is so well known and so famous, like a lot of people have that type of exposure to it. They look at it as an example of how they may be able to, um, make their fine dining restaurant work if that's their dream that they have. Mm -hmm. And so Noma closing and, and like pretty transparently stating the reasons for that being that the, the model is not economically or, um, you know, like, Emotional. uh, yeah. Um, it's not the word that I was going to use, but, but oh, yeah, <laughs> emotionally feasible. Um, it, it you know it breaks that illusion you know for a lot of people who right hold it as like an example of how they may be able to um make their restaurant work mm -hmm. you know if the best theoretically and the most and the restaurant with like the most notoriety and probably access to like the largest pool of stagiaires and some of the best produce and seafood in the world and mm -hmm. things like that if they can't make it work well then you know, right. what, how, what model is going to work, you know, to make my fine dining dream a reality or whatever. Right. And so in that sense, um, you know, I do think that, you know, like it, it really does kill that model for a lot of people who are probably chasing a similar dream. Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, yeah, I think that there's some, something very real about the statement that, you know, fine dining is dead. Um, because there are a lot of people who, um, you know, would 
chase that model and make a new fine dining restaurant or who are currently operating a fine dining restaurant that works in a similar way who are going to look at that and be like, I mean, I was hoping this wasn't true, but this is another nail in the coffin for it being true that it's not sustainable for us to keep doing this. But it's just one restaurant. It's like saying <laughs> like if my the pizza joint across the street from me closes like, oh, there we go. Pizza places don't work. <laughs> I think it's a little different than that. I don't know. Like there's all the other restaurants that have been named number one in the world are still operational. Uh, I mean, oh, except like, for El Bulli. Sorry, except for El Bulli. Well, like, and and like how in all of our discussion of I'm El- just playing devil's well, advocate. yeah, I know. <laughs> like in all of our discussion of Eleven Madison Park, like how sustainable does it seem like Daniel Hume thinks Eleven Madison Park has been historically, even while he's been there operating it, right? Mm-hmm. Like they he he like you know, keeps having to make these like drastic changes. And, you know, like, sure, he can say that some of that's because of the pandemic or, you know, um, you know, like changing perceptions. But like, you know, realistically, he's like digging around trying to find a model that's sustainable. And and that's like he even says that, you know, like in, in the in the podcast that we listen to where he's talking about, um, you know, like changing to uh, using only vegetable products or whatever, Mm -hmm. like the amount of work that they have to do to make the product that they put on the plate, Mm -hmm. you know, like he it's, there's no way that it's economically sustainable, you know, like they're sustaining the restaurant with multiple other revenue streams. Right. And so, yeah, I mean, it's still open, but you know, it, it doesn't, it's, it's not economically sustainable on its own as a restaurant and everyone that works there and everyone that works at most fine dining restaurants that are like that understand that that's the reality. But you know, like when you, when everyone is still making it happen, it's easy to say, Oh yeah, well this is just how it is. But Mm -hmm. you know, when's when, I mean, yeah. Okay. Sure. Currently it's just Noma, but I don't think it's just Noma, you know, like, the, it's only news because it's Noma. Right. Like, but in reality, like lots of these types of, well, like uh, also Manresa closed recently, I'm pretty sure, which is like a high end fine dining restaurant in California. Um, do you but remember then, the chef's name? No, I'm not sure. Okay. But then wouldn't you, isn't that just a restaurant thing? Like, I know that it's a slightly different model if it being fine dining, but like, you know, restaurants are closing left, right, and center now. Like yeah. it's, it's just <laughs> and have been always. Yeah, yeah. But but I I, I don't I don't uh, I don't think so. Like I don't think it's just a restaurant thing. I mean, you you can certainly categorize it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but but like, it's it's just like blatantly showing the cracks in a very specialized restaurant model. I think right. Yeah. You know, um, whereas those cracks like generally kind of get polished over usually right because the mm-hmm. whole idea of operating that type of restaurant is to like give people this experience where um you know like they feel like they're getting something extraordinary and they they don't you know and that like everything is perfect and i think that that seeps into like the culture of of like pretending that the business model works as well or something. I don't know. I know that seems like a weird statement, but like, I think that that attitude of like, of like, no, 
when you're here, everything is perfect mm-hmm. is like, I mean, I, I, I think that like, you know, chef owners of these types of businesses, it's like, it's kind of a part of their personality, right? Right. Yeah. This like perfectionism. And I think it would be crazy to think that that also doesn't seep into how they view the business mm-hmm. and things like that. And the types of things that they kind of would be in denial about or don't want to acknowledge about right. about the business. And then I think, um, you know, a really big example of that type of business and and like its chef owner coming forward and saying, you know, like, hey, I just want to be frank about this. Like, it's just not working. We can't really pay people the way that they deserve to be paid. And mm-hmm. it's also very hard on everybody. And it's really, um, you know, it's really difficult for me also. And, you know, it just doesn't make sense to keep doing it anymore. Like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I think that that sets a precedent. Can I give you a, a hot take? <laughs> yeah. So that that one of the earlier... We're all about hot oh, takes. <laughs> Maybe that could be the new name of the podcast. Um, Great. Yeah. Uh, so I asked earlier, like, should, should stages always be paid? And you said, yes. Let me float something to you. So to say in, in our labor code right now, we have a minimum wage. Mm-hmm. And it's $15 an hour. But we have a different minimum wage for... Um, workers who are 14 to 16. Did you know that? Yes. So I used to make that wage when I was 14. <laughs> right. Oh, what it was when I was 14, mm. I used to make. Yeah. And the, I think the logic behind that is to like, so they want to, they want young, like young people in the workforce because it's good for the economy. But f- most 14 to 16 year olds are living at home with their parents and right. they're earning money to go to the movies and stuff. Well, I don't know what kids do now, but that's what I would have been earning money for when I was that age. Um, yeah. And so they make an exception and they, they give them a, a lower wage and it helps. It also incentivizes the managers and owners to hire them. Um, right. So we have to have like a practical understanding of um, why we make different rules for um, labor code. We talked about how stages are voluntary. Mm-hmm. More importantly to me, they are temporary there for right. only for a few weeks typically and the people who are doing it are usually coming from in a global sense a place of privilege so i think it's perfectly reasonable if people are voluntarily traveling and they all it's they're upfront about the hours that they're working yeah for there to be unpaid stages like it's not it doesn't seem it's not deceptive and mm-hmm. as long as the workers are treated well it's not exploitative, I would say. If it's an agreed, if it's if, if if everyone's an adult and they're agreed, it's agreed upon. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm just trying to sort out like where the line is between me saying like that. Yes, I think all stagiaires should be paid, and yes, I think it's totally fine for someone to volunteer to do a job and not get paid for it. Mm-hmm. Um. So because because yes, I I do agree. Like I like. If volunteer work was illegal, <laughs> that would be really bad. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and I know that's kind of like the, it's, I know that's an op- oversimplification. Um, but, but like in a lot of ways, internships or, you know, um, stagiaire terms or whatever um, are volunteer work. Right. And in a lot of cases, 
uh, the the pay the payback that or the um, the uh, the remuneration that you get for doing volunteer work is that you're helping someone else that may not have the money to do what needs to be done to make sure that something that is like um, happening for a greater societal good gets done, even though the economics don't line up. Right. Right. Yeah. But that's not the case with stagiaires. Right. Mm -hmm. What remuneration the stagiaires are getting in theory is a couple of things like one a line on their resume learning what's <laughs> a, a line yeah. on their resume <laughs> okay sure i'm just yeah. kidding either. honestly no but 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 realistically like that probably is number one mm-hmm. a line on their resume mm-hmm. um because in a lot of cases i i think that you know stagiaires and, and this was apparent in one of the quotes that you read like in a lot of cases i think stagiaires think that they're going to learn a new style of cooking or something and that's going to boost their career into the stratosphere because they're going to have you know like this knowledge of of these like amazing cooking techniques or something like that right but but like um there's two problems with that mindset problem one is that like restaurants are a magic trick Mm -hmm. (laughs) and once you learn what the trick is you're like oh (laughs) you know like Mm -hmm. that's not that exciting right you just have to uh oh Really? So you just spend 13 hours <laughs> polishing bones? Okay, I guess. Yes. Um, yeah. You know? So so like that's that's thing one and then uh you know thing thing two is that like yeah, the reality of working in those restaurants is that, you know, there is a lot of tedious work and and you're not necessarily when you arrive in your first week going to have the skills to like you know, make sure that the lamb is cooked exactly how it's supposed to be cooked on the hotline for the customers that are going to eat it right away. Like, yes. you need to work up to that. And there's a lot of tedious work that needs to be done. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, you get stuck doing a lot of tedious jobs. Um, mm-hmm. And in some cases, if you're really talented or you do a great job, um, you can move around and move on to different stations and learn how to do a lot of those tedious jobs. Um, but but yeah, I think a lot of people's expectations aren't met. You know, they think that they're going to learn this like that it's going to be a magical learning experience, and then they get there and they're picking herbs for you know sixteen hours a day for the first five days that they're there, and they're like, "But I already knew how to pick herbs, <laughs> so I'm not know, learning anything." Did you know how to do it for like, sixteen hours though? Right? Yeah. That's well, it. and this is the thing: like, you are learning something by doing that. You're learning that that's what it takes to make a fine dining restaurant like that work. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, very scary for a lot of people who don't really understand a little bit more about the magic trick before they arrive or something. Um, Anyways. (laughs) I I don't think I've ever heard that restaurants are a magic trick. I like that. Well, I mean, yeah, kind of. You know, like they're create. Yeah, yeah. So, so, but anyway, like, so that that's sort of the re, re, remuneration that you're getting for being a stagiaire is a learning experience um, and something on your resume, mm-hmm. which is different than like, you know, helping in a voluntary way to, I don't know. Like a food drive or something. Yeah, food drive yeah. or picking up garbage by the side of the highway or I guess they get prisoners. Too, <laughs> so I'm not really sure where but <laughs> Perfectly analogous, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but like, you know, um, 
it's not it's not the same type of thing that you get out of volunteering your time yes. but you are making a conscious choice to volunteer your time for what you think that you're going to get out of it mm-hmm. and and like in a lot of cases i'm sure this is also the case with like other types of volunteer work like it doesn't you know what you think you're going to get out of it doesn't always line up with what you actually get out of it right yeah and you know and so i think that there are a lot of people who you know, are disappointed by their, by their stage experience. And I don't know if it's just a function of my, like, of the pragmatism of my own personality that I had a pretty good idea of what I was going to be getting out of it when I went to Noma. Mm-hmm. And so therefore, even though it was hard, I was expecting it to be pretty hard, maybe not as hard as it wound up being, but like, I was expecting it to be hard. And I was, I, I kind of knew what to expect from, reading people's experience about staging in those types of restaurants and reading books about, you know, right. young cooks apprenticing and things like that. Mm. Um, you know, I had, I had a pretty good idea going in. And so for me, my idea of what I was going to get out of it versus what I was going to put in was pretty aligned to what actually happened. Right. But I think for a lot of people, what they think in their head Versus, like, in terms of what they're going to get out of it versus what they're going to put into it, mm-hmm. is like drastically different once they get there, right. and then and then they can't help but be like a little bit shocked and feel like they're being taken advantage of. Mm-hmm. And when I said that I think that all stagiaires should get paid, clearly the most important word in that sentence is "should." Mm-hmm. Do I think it's possible? No, right. But do I think they should? Yes. You know, in like a perfect world kind of thing. Is that what yeah, you mean? yeah, in a perfect world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In in the utopia of fine dining. Yeah. <laughs> everyone should get paid for the 16 hours that they put in to make this like amazing food, you know? Mm-hmm. And so yeah, I I do think it's kind of tricky. And I understand also, like, as a business owner and hearing from stagiaires who are like, oh man, like, you know, even ones who are grateful, who are like, this was really great and I'm really glad that I was able to come, but but like I, you know, had to put myself in debt to come here and it's right. going to be really hard for me to dig myself out because I'm a cook mm-hmm. or something, you know, like yeah. when you hear that over and over from the people who are coming to your restaurant, um, you know, that's got to weigh on you in a way that makes you want to change that. And, and then I know also specifically, I mean, so you were talking about uh, you know, like minimum wage versus like a training wage. Mm-hmm. And, you know, is that equitable? But like the reality of like that conversation is that neither the minimum wage nor a training wage are equitable in most ways. Right. And there's another thing that's called the living wage yes. that, you know, doesn't really get discussed often enough. But a living wage is like what it actually costs a person to like support themselves versus how much money they make. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know what I don't know what the economics of it or what the math of it are. Um, I have a uh, we've been talking about this uh, quite a bit recently at Kind, like in the management team, mm-hmm. um, just trying to figure out where we stand there and figure out if there are ways for us to be doing better at it or mm-hmm. um and so I kind of understand what what the math for that in terms of restaurants looks like in Alberta. Mm-hmm. I don't exactly know what the math for that looks like in Denmark. Right. But I do know that 
when I was working in Denmark, even as like a, um, I, uh, like even as a person who was there working on a visa, like not even like a temporary resident or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and working like a fairly low position in a restaurant, I was making, uh, what basically I think is considered in Denmark to be a living wage, not a minimum wage. I see. Yeah. And so, um, you mean at the restaurants you worked at after Noma, right? That's what you're talking about. That's right. Yeah. yeah. When yeah. I was, when I was no longer working as a stagiaire, yeah. when I worked at Fiskabar, mm-hmm. uh, like the money that I was making, it was a, like basically no paid cook in Canada or the United States. That's not a manager gets paid a salary. But when I was working at Fiskabar, I was getting paid a salary. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I don't exactly remember what, what it was off the top of my head, but it was like enough money for me to afford to rent a room and take trips out of the city on the weekends and uh, buy groceries and make meals for myself and eat at restaurants mm-hmm. and put money away to buy a train ticket to travel through Europe and save money and pay down my credit cards. Like while I was working in Denmark, like in a fairly low position in a restaurant and and like to be fair also their money was worth quite a bit more than ours at the time Mm -hmm. um but you know i I was also living and working there so you know a lot of my expenses were in danish money my debts weren't but but my expenses were Mm -hmm. um and yeah i was able to rent a room and meet my needs and have money for uh entertainment and also put money away to basically travel in Europe for, I mean, once I, like, I didn't, I didn't save all of the money that I needed to travel around Europe for two months and eat pretty much wherever I wanted to. Um, but uh, like probably half of it I saved while I was working in Denmark for 10 months. Mm -hmm. And so uh, all of that is to say that like, you know, in Denmark, I know that they take the idea of like, everyone being paid equitably and a living wage and things like that very seriously. And I know that, um, you know, it's, it's kind of a a part of their culture. And so I, and and like from the evidence that I saw for how they were trying to improve the economics of, you know, the stagiaire program um, at Noma just in like the 10 months that I was in Copenhagen. Mm -hmm. And then also uh, talking to other people about it who were still friends of mine after I left and seeing things that like, like I know uh, a couple of years after I left, they changed the ownership and management structure of Noma and they made like a whole bunch of people who had been working there for a long time um, uh, who were kind of like, well, like one, for instance, uh, was Ali, who's like basically the dishwasher there he's like in charge of like the cleanliness and maintenance but he was basically a dishwasher there Mm -hmm. they made him part owner they made a whole bunch of people who had been there for a really long time part owner Mm -hmm. um to try and adjust the economics of how the restaurant was operating so that they felt like they were compensating people fairly for the amount of time and the amount of their life that they had put into this restaurant and i know that they have been doing that you know like over time, trying to change that model to make sure that, um, you know, that it is fair to the people who are devoting their life to it mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I, you know, like, I think there's a cynical way of looking at it to say, oh, well, you know, like, 
you know, suddenly there was just too many people complaining about not getting paid. And so, you know, they decided that they couldn't take the heat. And so they're deciding to close the restaurant. I don't really think that that's the reality. No. Like, I do think that like the values of most of the people that work there and even Rene's values in my experience, like those things really do, like his values really do align with um, that that type of view that everyone should be paid equitably. Mm-hmm. I think it's really complicated when he's the owner of the restaurant, like for, you know, and, and, um, and understanding, you know, how much the restaurant is making versus probably how much he is making and how much he's paying his staff and things like that. Mm -hmm. I don't think that, you know, it's probably ever sat well with him, um, even though he's continued to, you know, some might say take advantage of it. Um, but I think that on a, on a, like, I think that they have been trying to make changes in this direction for a long time. And I think that's because they recognize that it's not necessarily equitable or sustainable. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, like what happened here is they just came to a point where they realized, yeah, there's not actually going to be a way to make this equitable for everyone who's putting their time into this restaurant. And therefore, we shouldn't try to do that. We should try to do something else. Mm -hmm. Well, that's why it's interesting to see certain online (laughs) <laughs> food folks trying to pile on uh about the the stagiaire culture and negative culture at noma um with the, those articles when in a lot of ways rene redzepi in particular has done a lot to try and change the culture and i'm thinking mm-hmm. of like because i i know that well yeah well because of that article he put in lucky peach i can't remember yeah like where he's he kind of like, it's almost a confession, right? Like he's talking about, right. yeah, like I've not, I'm not proud of how I've acted and I'm changing it in terms yeah. of toxic work culture and, and stuff like that. Right. Um, he addresses that in the New York times article as well. Like, or there's a quote from him that addresses that in the New York times article about Noma closing mm-hmm. where he like brings up what he said in the lucky peach article and says that, you know, that was something that he took very seriously but that he also didn't you know totally succeed at Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that's part of the reason you know like that's part of his reasoning is that he feels like even like anything that's like makes it that difficult to like reduce the stress level enough that you don't have to that you don't feel like your your stress level is causing you to abuse people like that's not okay Mm -hmm. you know and i think that that's part of the realization that he's having Mm -hmm. i mean he doesn't say that directly but he he definitely like invokes that and he talks about the lucky peach article Mm -hmm. in the new york times article and says that yeah sometimes he failed in his effort to like change his attitude at work and stuff like that right so Hmm. so which noma food product from the lab are you most looking forward to purchasing is it the (laughs) the garum the rye miso what's gonna what are you gonna put in your pantry i don't know probably something that they haven't invented yet oh yeah yeah honestly like i think i knew in the back of my head that they had a few products that they were trying to sort of like retail but i didn't even really realize that it was possible for me to like go online and order them until i like read these articles and really started thinking about it and then i was like oh yeah they must have some kind of like retail thing going on and I haven't actually looked through their retail offerings. Did you look through them? 
I no, I only saw that Bon Appetit article links to the the Noma Projects page uh, where they're selling okay, yeah. what is it? Smoked mushroom garum and um, wild rose vinegar are the two links that the Bon Appetit provides. So I looked at those. But oh, yeah. so yeah, you can. Go. Are there prices on them? Yep. Uh, two hundred fifty mils of smoked mushroom garum is one hundred and ninety five. Is it kroners? Is that what the Danish use? Oh yeah, yeah. So I have no idea. I have no idea what that means in dollars. I but. think a hundred kroner is about well. When I was there, I think a hundred kroner was about twenty Canadian dollars. Let's ask the sure. robots. Please ask the robot. How much is one hundred ninety-five DKKs in Canadian dollars? Thirty-eight bucks. Oh, I was almost directly on the money. Yeah. Twenty dollars, hundred Canadian, or uh, twenty Canadian yeah. dollars, hundred. Yeah, kroner. That's right. Yeah. 40 bucks yeah. for a couple. Well, of that hasn't changed. Yeah. I mean, that's expensive. <laughs> I'm sure you can make your own mushroom garum for, uh, you know, for 50 cents a cup. But, you know, a lot of time and effort goes into it. So, and they have to ship it across the world. I'm sure that doesn't include shipping. I was actually last night, uh, did a little tasting of some traditional balsamic vinegar. And I was telling the people there, like I paid 40 euros for 100 milliliters of traditional balsamic. Oh. So, this Jeez, is well, a, there you go. This is a, a real deal by comparison. Yeah. <laughs> I, would, I would love to I would love to see a mushroom garum tasting and looks on people's faces. <laughs> it's an event idea, a pop-up idea. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Anyway, I don't know. Are we done talking about Noma? Are we done talking about the economics of fine dining? I did I answer your question about the ridiculous assertion that fine dining is dead? Or was did, did I get halfway through answering it and then get <laughs> sidetracked? Um, you said that this is, uh, I think, what I took away from your, your, your answer is um, <laughs> that it will be a blow to many people's concept of fine dining, but obviously people still want experiences and stuff like that so yeah right yeah and i think that's where i land on it i i mean i guess like i think in a way that i hope that it is more the death of fine dining than people think it is you know like you know if if a lot of people are like oh that's ridiculous to think that one restaurant deciding to close right. is you know like it would be one thing if they were just like had to declare right. bankruptcy yeah. and you know and were suddenly gone from the face of the earth i think um that would maybe even be a different more shocking thing for the food writers to write about than than like the idea that they decided to close to shutter the restaurant in a year from now and right. turn it into something else you know but yeah, part of me hopes that like, you know, for people that that hold it as an example of how to make um a high-end fine dining restaurant work, um that it will really cause some people to reassess whether they think that it's a good idea to try and make a restaurant mm-hmm. like that work or whether it will cause some people to do some more research and and you know, figure out if they can make a concept work like what's happening with 11 Madison Park and where they're, you know, trying to, uh, you know, not only feed the guests that are willing to come and pay a thousand dollars to have a meal, 
but that they also are making meals for people who don't have mm-hmm. enough money to mm-hmm. eat or, you know, whether there's some different approach that, you know, maybe, yeah, like cross pollinates the idea of volunteering with something that is actually like has worthy, good. um, Mm-hmm. Yeah, has public good mm-hmm. or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I think that there are a lot of different approaches that you can kind of look at to try and make that equation seem more equitable or more um, mm-hmm. positive. And, uh, you know, like, I do I think that Noma Closing is going to totally change the way that people approach the fine dining model? No, but... Do I think that there are a lot of people who look at that and are like, huh, yeah, maybe something isn't mm-hmm. exactly right here? You know, I, I really hope so. If you could ask Rene Redzepi one question, what would it be? <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry. I mean, I have an answer to this question, but oh. it's quite personal, <laughs> okay, and I don't sorry. know if I want to. I was not expecting that. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay uh yeah if i could ask renee one question what would it be um i think i don't know that's really tough like i i think i would want to know if he had to reconceptualize noma from mm-hmm. the beginning and this is obviously i i think people hate it um, you know, when interviewers or something, somebody asks them a question like this, like if you had to do it over again, would right. you do the same thing? Because, you know, like it's hard to reconcile like the knowledge that you have now versus the knowledge that you had when you started something. And and to say that you would have made a different choice, maybe not having that, even having that knowledge, it's it's like, it's difficult. But I think that's like, you know, realistically what what I would want to know is like, Knowing what he knows now and having gone through what he has gone through to make Noma what it is, you know, would he approach mm-hmm. it differently? You know, would he conceptualize it differently? Would he, I don't know, like, yeah, I, that's mm-hmm. that's what I would want to know. Like, does he think that there's a way to to like if he had to start from scratch, you know? does he think that there's a way to actually make it work where there's an ending where it doesn't have to shut down because it feels unsustainable, Mm -hmm. you know, is there a path there? I think is like the real question. And I think that that's, you know, the real question that everyone should be asking and that I'm sure that he has like been trying to Mm -hmm. answer for himself Mm -hmm. for a really long time. But my real answer to your question is so one day after I was done my stage at Noma, I was still living in the same neighborhood where Noma is. And I used to like hang out in the neighborhood. There was like a bunch of really great coffee shops and like a little museum like right near the building that I lived in and like all these like little bakeries and stuff. And so I used to just hang out in the neighborhood on my days off when I wasn't working at Fiskabar. This was like a few months after I had left Noma, but I'd seen Renee a couple times at Fiskabar and he knew that I was working there and he kind of knew who I was. Like, I don't know if he like remembered my name or anything, but he knew me to see me and he knew that I had, you know, been at Noma. We had some pretty memorable Mm -hmm. interactions, uh, he and I, while I was at Noma for six weeks or whatever, like we had a few pretty interesting conversations Mm -hmm. and stuff. And I think that, you know, like he remembered me because 
we had some memorable mm. interactions or whatever. But anyways, I was just hanging out in the neighborhood one day and uh, I think I was sitting at a coffee shop and he was like taking, I guess, like a little breather or something or um, taking a little lunch break or something. And he just like rode by on his bicycle and he saw me and uh, he was like, hey, do you want to like, and it's like really near mm-hmm. Christianstown too, where, which is like an area of Copenhagen where it's sort of like, it's hard to describe, but it's sort of like a lawless zone and so like <laughs> like the and purge so like yeah because it's like not owned by denmark what? or something <laughs> and so legally a lot of laws don't apply in this one little small area in copenhagen and so it's like legal to like um possess and smoke marijuana there and stuff where it's not legal in the rest of denmark although that may have changed since oh, I, I was would. there or something okay. I'm, I'm not really sure yep. but but at the time it was like um I don't know. It's really interesting culturally, and I would love to talk about it, but it's not really uh, it's not really a topic for this podcast. But but anyway, um, we were really close to there, and he was like, "Hey, like, do you want to come and smoke a joint with me?" And I was like, "Uh, I don't really smoke, so I'm not really interested in doing that, even though I'd love to hang out with you." And so, if I had if I had the opportunity to ask Renee one question, it would be like, "Hey." <laughs> Can I take you up on that now? Because, like, I feel like that would have been a really cool story. Yes, it would have been. And it probably would have been a really cool time to, like, just sit and relax with Renee and, Mm -hmm. like, smoke a joint or whatever. But I just didn't really want to smoke. And so I was like, no, Shale, I'm really proud of you for not giving in to peer pressure. (laughs) That's really cool. Yeah. Do you want to know what my question would be? I have one joke, one joke question, and then yeah. one, one my actual question. First, I would ask, um, "May I touch the hem of your chef coat?" <laughs> <laughs> you could probably just do that without getting punched. And then my second question, it would be a two-part question, and it would be, um, "Have you seen the menu, and what was it like for you to watch it?" Thanks for listening to Food Court, a podcast recorded in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Food Court is hosted by Alan Sudeby and Shale McDonald. Theme music by Ryan and Shale McDonald. Make sure to subscribe to Food Court in Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, or in your favorite podcast player. We love to hear from our listeners. Please drop us a line at feedback at foodcourt.fm or find us on Instagram at foodcourtpodcast. If you want to spread the word, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'll be back in two weeks with a fresh new episode. Thanks for listening.